DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an Associate Professor and the Academic Dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California. He also serves as the Academic Advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is also the author of Hidden Mountain, Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we discuss the writings of St. Teresa of Avila, whose spiritual classic, The Way of Perfection, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Anthony, the importance that Teresa would bring forward in the way of perfection over and over again for her sisters is don't rush things. If you see it happening for someone else, don't envy that or try say, why not me? Be happy, whatever that experience is for that sister. Be glad, but don't don't try to claim that or grab that for yourself. That's a, that's a trap that we can fall into rather easily, isn't it? Or we could try to do things or do techniques to try to make things happen. Yeah, I, I think both of those realities become things we contend with in our prayer. Is it's petty, but we can be jealous that somebody's growing and we don't seem to be. And we can be jealous over the favors shown them. And there's a way in which that jealousy can even serve us a little bit. Like, in other words, it can help us help wake us up out of our laziness. So it's not all bad. At the same time, though, when you notice that it's become envy, envy is where you grieve your sorry. You feel great sorrow over the fact that somebody else has been favored. And, uh, and, and you even... Uh, feel the movement to want to take that favor away or wish they didn't have that favor, that it would make you happy if they didn't have that favor. Well, that's just wicked, you know, that's silliness. And of course, that, that, that doesn't help us. Instead, when we see the good thing that God is doing in other people, I think it's okay to desire it and say, Lord, could you do that in me too? You know, and, and it's good to, when you see something good going in somebody, on in somebody else's heart, to go to them and ask, you know, how was it the Lord came to favor you this way? What was and to learn their story? Saint Anthony of the Desert used to always say, and when he was a young man, he used to go from one ascetic to the other and uh, learn their virtues. And he was pleasing uh, and kind to all. They they repeat that a couple times. Well, that's a good model for all all of us. In a way, that's what Teresa of Avila herself did. After her conversion, she sought out all kinds of holy people. She discovered John of the Cross. John of the Cross was thinking about becoming a Carthusian, and she intercepted him and said, don't become a Carthusian. We need you in the Carmelite reform. She sought the counsel of John of Avila. We've already talked about how she sought the counsel of of Francis Borgia. Uh, She sought the counsel of, of Peter of Alcantara. She was making connections, and then she read the great spiritual writers of her time, like Father Louis of Granada and, uh, and others. As she did this, as she got more and more connected and she learned the virtues of others, she didn't view herself in competition with them. 
She viewed herself as learning from them, and as she learned from them and appropriated their ideas, their ideas helped her grow into deeper intimacy with the Lord. And so that, that so the idea of being becoming envious over what's going on in the heart of another, what the Lord would rather desire us do is to see the good, good that is there and to desire that good and to ask the Lord how we can appropriate that good in our lives. And as we do that, what we discover is this holy friendship that she's written about, these spiritual friendships, begin to pop up. Uh, my, my own spiritual director calls it the web of grace. Uh, he... he he says that the greater your devotion to the Lord and to Our Lady, Our Lady kind of captures you in this web of grace of holy friendships. Uh, in, the, in this web of grace, everyone has, you can learn from everybody something a little bit different that's important for your own spiritual life. What you have will never be the same as what your neighbor has or your friend has. And it doesn't have to be because what your friend has and what your neighbor has is something good and pleasing to God that is irrepeatable. But this irrepeatable thing that they have, you can also be blessed by it in your life. And so that, and, and again, the first 18 chapters of this book is about a community way of life where you let that happen, where there's space for that to happen. Uh, but that can be destroyed if we're spiritually competitive with each other. If we're trying to outshine each other and we see our brother or our sister instead of a spiritual friend and from whom we have something to learn. If we look at them as the competitor or somebody to be overcome or that's, that's just a, a, a base spiritual immaturity. And, and a lot of us get bit with it. And when you recognize it in yourself, there's not a lot to do besides repent. And when you recognize it, renounce it and God will get you through it. You know, that doesn't have to characterize you, but it is a common thing to struggle with in the beginning of the spiritual life. The other common thing. I've seen this also with husbands and wives. I used to work with deacons and their wives in a formation program in Denver. And normally at the beginning of the program, it was very clear that the the wife had the deep spiritual life and the husband was kind of just being drug along. And, and in some instances, you know, it was the wife who saw that her husband had a diaconal vocation. He was too spiritually asleep to see it himself. So that, that was kind of a, a normal thing to have happened. But then what would happen after they were in the formation program, all of a sudden these men who maybe were a little bit more spiritual sleepy, they would wake up and their spiritual life, their prayer would just like take off. And the, the poor wife, she, she felt left in the dust. Like, what, I want what he had. What, what just happened there? And they, they went through a little bit of a, a grieving kind of thing that viewed themselves as the more spiritual of the two. And all of a sudden, now their husband is. Well, that was a perception, but it wasn't quite the reality. Reality was that you're dealing with two beautiful souls whom God had been working with in complementary ways. And so the next stage would be for the deacon and his wife to come to recognize the beauty of what God was doing in each other and what this meant for their relationship and for their family. And if that could happen, the wife would become a really sure support in his ministry. But just like that drama played out for deacons and their wives, the work I was privileged to do in Denver, that pattern 
The reason why I could recognize it was because I'd seen it before. I'd seen it in my life. I'd seen it in the lives of people that I deeply cared about. And it's a, a difficult little transition to make, but, it, but an important one. There is another aspect, though, to your question that I think is, is also worthy of reflection is besides kind of envying what God is doing at others or uh, being greedy about what God is doing at others and trying to you know, grasp it for ourselves, there's another kind of s- spiritual greed or gluttony that can sometimes take hold of us. And that is, you know, I want spiritual experiences. I, I want to gobble up spiritual experiences. I, I notice this uh, sometimes I, I work with people who get very involved in some kind of spiritual fad. It might be charismatic, or it might be Marian, or it might be catechetical, and they're going to all these different conferences and things, or they're going to different pilgrimage places. I love pilgrimages, and I love conferences, and these are wonderful, and I love some of the wonderful personalities today who are doing great talks. Uh, in my family, we've listened to all of Jeff Cavins over and over, you know, and, and he's been a blessing for us. At the same time, though, as much as these blessings are, if I approach them as something to consume or to gobble up uh, so that I can have this spiritual experience or that spiritual experience, what I'm, my devotion isn't to the Lord. My devotion is to spiritual experience. My devotion is to enlightenment that this teacher or that teacher might have. My devotion is to be able to say, I've been there, done that with, on the pilgrimage routes. But that's not devotion to Jesus. The risen Lord is above and beyond all of that. He can use any of that to draw us closer to him, but none of those things are him. The same is true also with prayer techniques and spiritual exercises. I've uh, known a lot of people who've gone into the long retreat looking for a spiritual experience. And unfortunately, there are directors out there who feed that gluttony rather than help their, the person going into the long retreat renounce that kind of gluttony. Gluttony for food is you are trying to console yourself with the pleasure that food gives, uh, the distraction that, that good food provides or even bad food provides. I'm thinking potato chips isn't actually good food, but that's my poison of choice, you know, and uh, something about the salt and the potato together can't be beat. Yeah. <laughs> the reality is that few potato chips every once in a while, probably that's not gluttony, but, but when you're using that pleasure and the satisfaction you get from eating to distract you from a deeper interior pain, you're not really dealing with reality anymore. Teresa of Avila, she, in the Carmelite way of prayer, we, we mentioned the wild horse crossing the desert to get to the, to get to the water, and we mentioned there's an enemy on the way. Well, uh, for her, the spiritual exercises are a secondary thing. If they help you tame the horse, amen, hallelujah, please use the spiritual exercises, whatever you find helpful. But if not, they're not helping you tame the horse. Uh, if meditating on this point or that point isn't help, helping you, then ask God what will help you. The point in the spiritual exercises is not to get through them so that if somebody says, so uh, have you been through the long retreat? 
and yes, I've done the 19th annotation, and you know, there's kind of this esoteric kind of thing that Ignatius would be horrified by that. For Ignatius, it was never about having the experience of the retreat. We live in a culture where there is a gluttony for experience. Why is that bad? Because we can use our craving for experience to mask the deeper pain that we suffer. We can use, we can master techniques, but never really deal with the pain. And the mastery of our technique in that case, uh, the mastery of the method that we've taken on, does nothing more than distract us from the pain. For Teresa of Avila, what is important is to get in touch with that pain, that thirst for God. And whether it's a method that helps you do that or not, sometimes it's no method at all. It's simply sitting quietly in the presence of the Lord, being aware, not because you feel him or intuit him or can think about him or can imagine him, but to just be aware by a sheer act of faith that he's there. And in that, you feel your deep yearning for him. For Teresa of Avila, that kind of recollection is as fruitful or more than a long retreat or any spiritual exercise that you might do in the long retreat. In case in point, some people would at this point think that I'm dissing uh, St. Ignatius or poo-hooing St. Ignatius. Actually, I'm actually being faithful to St. Ignatius. If you read the very beginning of the, his spiritual exercises, in the very first paragraph of the spiritual exercises, he explains the spiritual exercises are not only those contained in this book, these books, the, what is contained in his spiritual exercises, merely there, only proposed, if it is helpful. So he's not even saying they're the most helpful things. He's not saying they're the most important things. He wrote these things while he was in uh, Manresa, after he had uh, spent a long time uh, in prayer, uh, lived the ascetical life, been a foot pilgrim, he went to Manresa, and spent a much longer period of time writing out these exercises with the hope that he could help lead other people into the experience of the Lord that he carried with him. He used to, in fact, as a foot pilgrim, he'd walk, he'd be bawling all the time. Tears would just be shedding, falling off of his face all the time. Why? Because he was so touched by the love of God. That's what he wanted for the early members of the Society of Jesus, even before he conceived of forming a Society of Jesus. He wanted to help men be touched by the love of God. The spiritual exercises, then, that he proposes for the long retreat, those are only proposed if they're helpful. He recognizes God works in any number of ways and that God may use some other method completely or no method at all. Um, the spiritual exercise may be simply an act of recollection before the Lord or a deeper form of contemplative prayer where uh, the fire of God's love visits us in a new way. So St. Ignatius was not attached to his own spiritual exercises. Uh, neither should we be uh, attached to anybody's spiritual exercises. God so loved the world that he did not send us a program or a method or a technique. He sent us his only begotten son. And Jesus comes to us in a, a multitude of different ways, manifold, 
in ways that we cannot possibly exhaust. And every time he comes, he comes in a new way. He comes in ways to surprise and astonish us. He never comes the same way twice. When we try to grasp on one way he used to work in one point or at this in this prayer experience, and we try to hang on to that, we may well be blocking us off, ourselves off from some new way that he wants to come to us, some way we haven't even imagined. He is totally other than us, and where he wants to bring us is if from where we are right now, is totally unfamiliar to us. If we want to go to an unfamiliar place to find someone who's totally other than us, then we need to go by an unfamiliar way, says St. John of the Cross. We need to go by faith and love alone. And uh, so techniques can help, and methods can help, and, and if they do, that's great. My favorite technique happens to be the rosary. I also like the liturgy of the hours. I love Lexia Divina. These things help, but when they get in the way and it's time to close the book and just be silent before the Lord, I close the book and I be silent before the Lord because what is important at the end of the day isn't the technique or the method. Uh, what is important is that we attend by faith to the Lord who comes to us with great love and great yearning. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. The Memorari. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, 
the higher our profile and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. You know, it's amazing that not only Ignatius would say that, but Teresa herself, she over and over again says, this is a way that I've seen often in others, but who knows how God will work, mm-hmm. essentially. She says, it may happen completely differently for someone else. She's always open to possibility. That's right. And so, for example, when we were talking about the different kinds of water earlier, somebody could have a mechanical um, understanding of that and think, well, I got to do this and then I got to do that. And, then, and, and they can even think that, well, okay, I've done this now for three days. I've, d- I've drawn water out of the well and now I want to practice recollection. And so, you know, well, it's much more organic like that. And, and she says that in her work. She says it's even people in the highest level of union with God, she says sometimes the Lord humbles you and wants you to go draw water out of the well again. And with all that effort and determination and perseverance, sometimes that's what gives him the greatest glory. Entered into the heights of mystical union, been raptured into the, you know, the, uh, the highest heavens. And the Lord says, okay, that's great. But now I want you to go do the humble work of drawing water from the well. And Teresa, I don't think Teresa Avila would have written about that if that wasn't, in fact, her experience. And in fact, you can notice sometimes while she's writing her spiritual work, she said, you know, I'd forgotten all about this prayer because I was favored with a higher level of prayer. But, you know, I was trying to write this for your edification and write what I used to experience and I'd forgotten. And then just this morning, the Lord visited me with this prayer. And now I remember. And she goes into her description. So these things aren't mechanical, like, okay, I've graduated from drawing water out of the well and from spiritual exercises and simple meditation. And now I am, you know, graduated out of that and into recollection. Well, no, it doesn't. It's not a graduation ceremony. It's a love relationship. And the Lord uh, sometimes privileges you with prayer far beyond where you're at morally for reasons that only he knows. And you are, as it were, like a visitor in those higher higher levels of prayer. And then he's going to lower you back down to uh, to a prayer that's a form of prayer, a method, or ask you, invite you back to take up a method that that you thought was for beginners and couldn't possibly be for somebody like me right now. And just as the Lord has that kind of freedom, we need to have that kind of freedom in approaching Him too. An excerpt from The Way of Perfection by St. Teresa of Avila, Chapter 19. There are some souls and some minds as unruly as horses not yet broken in. No one can stop them. Now they go this way, now that way. They are never still. Although a skilled rider mounted on such a horse may not always be in danger, he will be so sometimes. And even if he's not concerned about his life, there will always be the risk of his stumbling so that he has to ride with great care. Some people are either like this by nature, or God permits them to become so. 
I am very sorry for them. They seem to me like people who are very thirsty and see water a long way off. Yet when they try to go to it, find someone who all the time is barring their path. At the beginning of their journey, in the middle, and at the end. And when, after all their labor, and the labor is tremendous, they have conquered the first of their enemies, they allow themselves to be conquered by the second. And they prefer to die of thirst rather than drink water, which is going to cost them so much trouble. Their strength has come to an end. Their courage has failed them. And though some of them are strong enough to conquer their second enemies as well as their first, when they meet the third group, their strength comes to an end, though perhaps they are only a couple of steps from the fountain of living water, of which the Lord said to the Samaritan woman that whosoever drinks of it shall not thirst again. How right and how very true it is that which comes from the lips of truth himself. In this life, the soul will never thirst for anything more, although its thirst for things in the life to come will exceed any natural thirst that we can imagine here below. How the soul thirsts to experience this thirst, for it knows how very precious it is. And grievous though it be, and exhausting, it creates the very satisfaction by which this thirst is allayed. It is therefore a thirst which quenches nothing but desire for earthly things, and, when God slakes it, satisfies in such a way that one of the greatest favors he can bestow on the soul is to leave it with this longing, so that it has an even greater desire to drink of this water again. This water that she alludes to. Are we all then, Anthony, in some ways, that woman at the well? Is that why this, this illusion for her, that, that there's someone who knows and understands this more deeply than anyone else has ever been able to know or understand us, even better than ourselves? Well, that's, that's, a beautiful, that's a beautiful thought because it ties this whole image of water to the scriptures and it also ties it into the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church picks up the same image. In fact, as I was reading this, I also realized that Saint Therese of Lisieux uses this same uh, image too. And so Teresa of Avila has had a huge impact in helping us go back to the well where Jesus had that conversation. And it's an interesting conversation because the conversation begins with Jesus addressing the woman and saying, I thirst. He asks her for water. You know, the other time he's going to say, I thirst, is when he's on the cross. This meaning, I thirst, is kind of the I thirst who this lady anticipates the thirst, the heartache that he endures on the cross. Uh, on the cross, he longs for the consolation of the Father. Uh, it's so taken away from him that he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, who are Christians, we're kind of headed in the same direction uh, because we cannot be his disciples unless we renounce ourselves, pick up our, our own crosses, and follow in the footsteps of our crucified Master. But this journey that we're making, this journey of the cross, 
is a journey that may and will lead to our death in different ways, is also a journey taken up because he is the deep dug well of living water and waters flow from him. And that makes every sacrifice we make, every renunciation, every hardship we must endure, every challenge we must confront, it makes all of that worth it when we have him. The story of the woman at the well is a powerful story because this woman who didn't recognize Jesus at first is gradually brought into his mystery because he engages her with his thirst. And through his thirst, he excites in her, engenders in her a thirst for for the Lord. Uh, So much so that she becomes his his apostle. She goes into the, the village and invites everyone to come and hear the man who told me all about everything I did. For those who begin to sip from the deep dug well that is Christ in his living waters, they are able uh, or they are emboldened. Uh, They can't be stopped. They want to tell other people about him uh, because they have joy and they found meaning and they found a fullness of life. And they want other people to know this joy and this meaning and this fullness of life. With Teresa of Avila, of course, this is an image of prayer and an image of encounter with the Lord. What this means, if we see understand this context, is as you drink of these waters or as you struggle to find these waters, as you let your, your thirst uh, guide you to these waters, you open your heart to be completely transformed. You open your heart to a fullness of meaning, a fullness of, of life, of joy, that nothing in this world can take from you. And so the journey is worth it. It's a tough journey, and it's going to require perseverance and determination and all kinds of disappointments and heartaches. But the way of perfection is the way of love, and we cannot love except at our own expense. And this is what Teresa of Avila is pointing to. She's saying prayer opens us up to this journey. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to support our efforts. Most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.